This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 12. This morning we are continuing the second in a series of Name Above All Names. If you remember last week, Bill did a splendid job, I thought, on the Son of God. And today we are cracking open a different title of Jesus Christ, and that is the name Son of Man. John chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 32. Now we're picking up in the midst of a discourse between Jesus and a crowd of people. And He says this in verse 32, And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. But He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. The multitude therefore answered Him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now I hope that as you um, read that along with me, you, you see almost firsthand, if nothing else, that there is obvious confusion and misunderstanding between what Jesus is speaking about and what the crowd is actually hearing. He's talking about one thing, and they in this passage are actually hearing another. He says, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, which John helps us understand that Jesus here is speaking, or at least hinting at, the crucifixion that would take place just a short time later. However, the crowd hears that to mean that Jesus Christ is not just to be lifted up, they hear Him referencing that somehow He's going to be taken out of the world. And for them, that's very disturbing. Now, why would that be so disturbing to them? Because they have gathered around Him for a specific reason. They've watched Him. They've become enamored with His ministry. They've seen some of the miracles that He has done. And at this point, they are contemplating whether Jesus is in fact the Christ. If you'll notice, that's the word that they use in the text as He speaks to them. And uh, they wanted Him to be the Christ, the Messiah. And if, in fact, He was the Messiah, the Christ, then they would not expect Him to leave the world. Now the reason for that, they, they tell you in the text. They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ is to remain with us forever. In other words, their understanding, at least from second-hand information that's been given to them, that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah who would reign on earth forever. And therefore, if you're Him, you can't leave us. That's where the confusion lies. Now it's important for you to note in your Bibles, right here at the start, is that when they're talking to Him, they say, we have heard out of the law. Now that's very important to what we're going to talk about here in the next few moments. Their understanding of the Messiah is something that they had heard others talk about out of the law. They themselves had not gone to the law themselves and actually read it. Their understanding of Messiah was second hand. You know, I hear 
people from time to time say, well, the Bible has contradictions, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. And when you finally ask them, well, have you read it? A lot of times they'll back up on their heels and say, no, they heard a professor say it or a friend say it or whatever. It's just secondhand. And that's the case of these people here. They had also heard some other things about the Christ. That's not stated in our passage, but it's found elsewhere. They had also heard that Christ would crush the Roman oppressors. Their understanding of the Messiah would be a liberator, a political giant who would throw off the yoke of Rome and establish Israel as a spiritual world empire that all the nations of the earth would look to. Their understanding of the Christ was one who would usher in for them Jewish glory. And that was a popular notion of hearsay at the time Jesus walked the face of the earth. So if you're the Christ, the Messiah, you can't leave. You're supposed to be the King. And then they add, kind of in a sense of frustration, a response to Jesus' reference to Himself as being the Son of Man. They'd never heard that. So it ends with this question, who is this Son of Man? Now I want you to notice here how unfamiliar these people were with the phrase, Son of Man. And there's good reason for that because it's a term they'd never heard before. It was a term that they were uncomfortable with. It was a title that had not been used in Israel before. This was a new term altogether for them to hear. So what did Jesus mean by it? And why didn't Jesus just say to them what everyone was sensing? They wanted Him just to say, state plainly and clearly, I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. Why didn't He say that? Well, that's a good question even for us. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you keep wanting Jesus to say it. You keep looking for a verse where He'll say it outright and you won't find it. So why didn't Jesus just come out and say directly, I'm the Messiah? And yet He never did. He never said it outright. In fact, the closest that ever He came to it was at His trial where the high priest who knew the Scriptures and all that knew clearly what Jesus was kind of claiming to be through His works and His miracles and His message. He screams at Jesus at the trial with all the political leaders and religious leaders around Him. He screams at Him and says, I command you by the living God, tell us whether you're the Christ. There was this kind of silence. He's center stage. You expect Him to say it. But here's what He says to the high priest. You've said it yourself. <laughs> oh man, that's kind of how I felt when I read it the first time as a young believer. Oh man, why didn't he just say it? He had everyone listening to him. And yet I want you to know that that's exactly the point. He didn't want to say it. He stayed away from it. He left it in your hands to decide. So what's the deal here? Well, the deal is this. You might just jot this down. Words change. That's the deal. Sometimes some words become so electrically charged at a point in time, sometimes a phrase will become so politicized, so made over, so reinvented as to divorce itself from its original meaning and intent. Words change. Fifty years ago, if you would have asked me how I'm doing, I could have replied to you in all honesty and sincerity without feeling a sense of apprehension or fear or social alienation or 
some kind of stigma that you would put on me if you just said, well, Robert, how are you doing? I could have said, with all spontaneity and transparency, well, I'm feeling rather gay. I could have said that. And you would have congratulated me for my moment of bliss and moved on, not thinking anything about it. But you know, if I said that today, you wouldn't move on. <laughs> Your jaw would drop because gay is no longer a feeling, is it? Gay has taken on a whole different color. It speaks of a social movement, a sexual orientation, a political class of people with an agenda. A number of years ago, there was another word that began to teeter on the brink of grammatical metamorphosis. Not in the world, but in the religious realm, in church circles. It was the word head. You know, 50 years ago, head meant the honorable social position that a man bore in regards to his wife and his family. And no one here would have any problem or any reaction or any social controversy if a man said, well, yeah, I'm the head of my home. But today, head has begun to change colors. It's gone through the social chaos of the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's been pitted against one half of the gender spectrum. And it's been fuel injected with all kinds of negative images of dominance and bullying and selfishness and abuse and backwardness. So much so that the word head has slowly been extricated from wedding ceremonies and hymns and theological addresses. There's even a movement today on to go into your Bible and extract it and replace it with a more socially sensitive word. Words change. And likewise, when Jesus began His public ministry, the title Messiah, the title Christ, those terms carried a lot of political baggage with it. It had gone well beyond the idea of being a spiritual deliverer, which was its original intent. It was now more a political term than a spiritual term. It was promising more brute force and power to overthrow a political empire than it was promising personal power to overthrow the depravity of the human heart. Messiah in the first century sounded more like a Jewish Caesar than it sounded like a humble servant who would change lives. So you know what? With all that electrically charged material attached like barnacles to the hull of a ship called Messiah, Jesus chose to stay away from it, to not touch it. It had been stained by the political world in which people lived. It had, gathered, it had gathered an infection from the culture. And so he chose instead an unfamiliar term that no one would use to explain who he was. And you had to go to him for him to personally tell you what it meant. I, well, I'm the Son of Man. And you go, well, what does that mean? And he says, well, come closer. And I'll tell you. Now before I offer you some Son of Man perspectives to help you flesh out this mysterious title, I want to ask you a question. Right at this point, could we stop for just a moment and plant the flag, so to speak, and ask a question. 
Is there something to be learned out of changing words, using new words like this? Is there, is there something to learn about Jesus choosing this unfamiliar designation to present Himself as the Son of Man rather than choosing the more popular title, the Christ? Let me tell you, I think there is. I think there's a strong message for the church and for the world, and it's this. You know, the best way to really know Jesus Christ, the best way to really know who He is, is to come meet Him personally and let Him tell you who He is, rather than hearing about Him secondhand through the words of others or the experiences of others. They may be accurate, but you know, then again, they may not be accurate. The people in John 12 had a caricature of who Jesus Christ was. And they were trying to fit it into Him into its mold. And He used a totally fresh term to cause them to drop that term and come to Him and let Him tell them personally who He really was. Some of you have had that experience. People have heard about you and you finally meet that person and they say, you know, you're not anything like what they told me. And that's exactly the point. In fact, the word caricature is very helpful to us at this point. The word means a false or exaggerated image of something that is in fact real. And often it is caricatures, listen to me very carefully, often it's caricatures of Jesus Christ, not Jesus Christ Himself that people react to. Did you know that? They've never come and experienced Him personally. They're reacting to the false or exaggerated images of Him. Listen, there are some people today who are just like the people in John 12 who seek a Jesus they've only heard about. A Jesus they're going to go to and He's going to clear up all their problems. He's going to deliver them from all their pain. He's going to give them their heart's desire and bless it in spades. He's going to make them financially wealthy and healthy. He's going to not ask anything but give everything. And they fill arenas looking for that Jesus that they've heard about. And many of them become incredibly cynical and disappointed when He doesn't show up. You know, there are other people, in fact many people, who stay away from seeking the real Jesus because of the Jesus that they think that they've seen. The Jesus they thought they saw in their overly strict parents who never had any fun, but kept talking to them about how great God was. There are some people that thought they saw the real Jesus in their dead and boring churches. And they say to themselves, if that's who Jesus is, I don't want anything of Him. Some people think they've seen Jesus in their hypocritical Christian friends who talk the Gospel a lot, but who live the Gospel out just a little. Some people think they've seen the real Jesus on TV. You know, in screaming madmen, asking for money and promising everything. And they turn it off saying, if that's the real Jesus, then I'd rather have the alternative. But what they've really seen is not the real Jesus at all. They've just seen a caricature. And they react against that caricature. And let me tell you, the number one reason that I've experienced that keeps people from really investigating the Christian faith is caricatures. Turned off, hurt people, the church is burned or a friend, Christian friend is burned or the home has burned 
And they never consider the real thing because they've gotten this false and exaggerated image that they think is real. So what happens here is Jesus throws off the characters. He won't let them put those labels and He creates His own title. He calls it the Son of Man and He invites you to come and understand what that means. That's what the Son of Man is all about. Now let me offer you three broad perspectives on the Son of Man. And this is going to get a little teachy here for just a moment, but I think it's very necessary to put some substance on that term. One biblically, one theologically, and one historically. First, Biblically, the Son of Man has a strong Old Testament connection. Now, most of the people in Jesus' day did not know that because it's not used very often in the Old Testament, but it's there. In his book, Who is Jesus? R.C. Sproul puts it this way, the historic consensus among scholars is that Jesus adopts the meaning of the term Son of Man, listen now, as it's found in Daniel's visionary work. And where is it found in Daniel's visionary work? In Daniel chapter 7. So I want you to turn there. And uh, let me read it for you. Now, when you turn to Daniel 7, you're turning in which Daniel the prophet is making these incredible prophecies of the future. And he says there's going to be five empires that rule the world. And he describes them figuratively. And then, which really shocks anybody who wants to investigate the Christian faith, he actually interprets his vision and tells you what those nations are. And for anybody that wants something supernatural, Daniel 7 is the place to go. Because he tells you who the world empires are way beyond and way before those empires even came into existence. And he says at the end of time, the four human empires will be destroyed. And in the rubble of those empires, one empire will usher in and carry us into eternity, and that's the kingdom of God. And that's where we pick it up in verse 13. Daniel's looking in these night visions and he says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, remember that term, clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, one like a... Son of Man was coming. Now this is hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. And He came upon the Ancient of Days. That's a reference to God in all His glory. And was presented before Him. And to Him, this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and all the nations and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man will come in the clouds establishing an everlasting kingdom. And when Jesus used that term, except for maybe the biblically, or at least Old Testament, illiterate, they wouldn't have caught that connection. But you know, there was a point in time when Jesus stood before the high priest and he spoke of himself as the Son of Man where the high priest, literate in the Old Testament Scriptures, understood exactly what he was saying. Now I want you to turn over to Matthew 26 and see how Jesus, in a sense, refers to himself as the Son of Man and the priest who is judging him at that moment catches the connection. It's the one I've just referenced where Jesus is up before the trial and the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell me if you're the Christ. Well, let's pick it up in Jesus' answer in verse 64. Matthew 26, verse 64. Here's what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, as He said, are you the Christ? You have said it yourself, but I'm going to tell you something else. Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. You know what the high priest immediately thought about? Daniel, 
where this one like a son of man comes up and receives all the kingdoms of the earth on the clouds of heaven in this vision. He immediately connected the two. And in connecting the two, he knew Jesus Christ was not only saying he was the Christ, he would be the ruler of eternity. And his reaction, because he didn't believe that of Jesus, was natural because he saw himself clearly as calling himself the Christ, the Messiah. And he said to him in verse 65, it says, Then the high priest tore his robe saying, He's blasphemed! Well, maybe. But just maybe the Son of Man told the truth. At any rate, biblically, the Son of Man connects Jesus as the eternal King who will rule over mankind forever. That's what we need to hear. Secondly, a second perspective is theologically. From this perspective, the Son of Man means the head of a new humanity. The head of a new humanity. You know, the Bible recognizes only two leaders. If you're biblically literate, you know that there are only two leaders of mankind. And God has stated clearly who they are. They're the ones who represent everything about us, either realized or yet potential. The first leader God named Adam. Remember Adam? His name in Hebrew just simply means mankind. He was the genetic fountainhead from which all the human race as we know it would spring. All of us can trace our genes, because genes are big today, all the way back to Adam. Just recently, scientists have said, as they've looked at DNA and genetic material, that it all has to go back to one person. That's science. And Adam was the representative of the human race as we know it. But then we get introduced to a second leader. In fact, in Scripture, he's called the second Adam or the second mankind. And suddenly we have an option over the first mankind. We have a second mankind. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and you'll see what I mean there. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul introduces us to this second Adam. Turn over there now. Let's look at it together. Verses 45 to 49. Here's what Paul says. So also it's written, the first mankind, or the first man, is Adam, and he became a living soul. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, the whole chapter is about Jesus Christ, so everyone knows who the last Adam is here. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, the first mankind, is from earth and earthy. All the characteristics of the world as we know it. The second mankind is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we, that is we believers in Christ, have borne the image of the earthy, and boy have we. We're dirty, aren't we? But notice, there's a second option. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. You see, Jesus Christ as a man, as a distinct mankind within our world, he is endowed genetically with eternal spirit. And all those who find their new life in Him, because remember, He's a life-giving spirit, they become endowed genetically with spirit life themselves that will go on forever. F.F. F. Bruce, one of the world's preeminent theologians, says it this way. He says, the idea behind Son of Man is similar to what Paul has in mind here when he spoke of Jesus as the second man or the second mankind. Jesus has been appointed by God to be the spokesman, the leader, and the sponsor of a new humanity raised to a new 
spiritual dimension. That's all that name the name of Christ. We don't fully understand that, but one day we will. And you know what else is true about this text? Is that Jesus is called the second mankind because He's man. He wedded Himself to mankind. And He intends to relate to us for all eternity as a man in a body. That's why this whole chapter on resurrection is so important. 1 Corinthians 15. You know, we think at some point we're going to go into eternity and we're just going to be spirit beings. That's not true. Eternity is filled with physical beings. And the one who's most physical and most tangible and most eternal will be the Son of Man who will relate as God to us on our level as man and reign for all eternity. Now that may be a new thought to you. But the Scriptures teach that clearly. When Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, the second mankind, He means it forever. Forever. I'm the leader of a new humanity as a man. Then there's a third perspective. It's one that's historical. And that's this, that the Son of Man means a ministry of redemption. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The Son of Man did not come to us to destroy, but to save. And the words to come are very important. Because Jesus' coming to us was more than overcoming distance in terms of space. Jesus' coming to us was more in terms of covering the distance of experience between a God and a man. You see, when Jesus became man, He became like us. You know, not too long ago, I remember driving my car home one day, and a song came over the radio. It was a song by John, uh, Joan Osborne. And uh, probably the older ones of us don't know Joan Osborne, but the younger ones will. She wrote a song called uh, One of Us. It's a pop song. And part of the lyrics go like this. What if God were one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And you know, I heard those lyrics and they played over and over again and I found myself having real mixed feelings. You see, on the one hand, I consider myself a theologian. And that really bothered me because it borders on heresy and sacrilege. But you know, what, what got me, the mixed feelings, the conflicting feelings that were so odd is I felt drawn into the song. And the reason I felt drawn into the song because there was, there was an offering of God to me as one who identifies with my life. Just a slob like me. One who struggles just like me. One who, who can't get along with people just like me. One who deals and wrestles with his temperament just like me. One who feels betrayed at times just like me. Trying to make his way home just like me. There was this kind of warm sense of identification with the human race. And when I saw the video not long ago, with the images of people as that song was sung, there's just something about the fact that He is with us, but He's also one of us. Son of Man was Jesus' delight to say. It always came off His lips. He loved saying it 80 times in the Scriptures. 
He used that phrase. He used that phrase of Himself more than any other. It was the number one designation that Jesus used of Himself. I'm the Son of Man and I like that because I'm with you and I'm like you. And I didn't have to be. I didn't have to be. I left it all. I left the glory and grandeur of eternity. I left my unending creativity. I left the adulation of all the creatures of space. I left my unlimited power. I left my wondrous fellowship with my Father. I left the grandeur of worlds and realms that you have never even heard about. And I left it all to be like you. I left it all to struggle with my humanness like you. To be hungry and tired and worn out and anxious and sexual and tempted just like you. To suffer pain just like you. To deal with troublesome people and experience hurt and betrayal just like you. To offer myself and yet be ignored by people. And then finally used by people. And then abused by people just like you. Yep. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make my way home. I'm with you, man. Because I'm the son of man. I, didn't be, I just didn't come to you. I became you. And you know why? So that you would have the chance to become like me. That's what the son of man is all about. Historically, it's about him becoming like us so that we would find a connection and an offering of real life, our experience, to give us hope that we could be like Him. Well, the Son of Man biblically is the King of an eternal kingdom. Theologically, He's the head of a new humanity. Historically, He's on our level to lift us up. But now here's the real question. What does the Son of Man mean personally to you? What does He mean personally to you. Well, you know, that really all depends, as I thought about this week, it all depends on where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage today. Because Jesus, if you remember, chose Son of Man in the first century because it was unfamiliar. People had to come to Him personally to know what it meant. And that's the way He liked it. He liked for you to come to Him personally so He could interact with you, He could personally connect with you, and then inject meaning into the Word as you experienced Him up close and personal. And I think it's exactly that way today. With every person in this room. So I'm going to sum that up by offering a diagram that you find on the end of your bulletin, if you'll look at it for just a moment. And this diagram kind of summarizes all the observations that I made in looking up, if you believe it or not, I looked up all 80 plus scriptures that said Son of Man. And as I looked those up, what I discovered was that, at every, that what it offered was Jesus' connection with people at every point in their existence, all the way out into eternity. And at every point, He injects new meaning. For instance, if you are lost, maybe you're here today, you're lost, you don't know what the church is all about, a friend invited you, a family member, and it's confusing and you're a little scared and you've got sweaty palms with me even mentioning that word. If you're lost, I want you to know the Son of Man meets you, He meets you, brings meaning to that moment. If you feel guilty, and people feel guilty today, even though we have a lot of money to try to buy our way out of guilt with counselors and therapists and friends and things, the fact is our culture has a lot of guilt because it's done a lot of bad things with its prosperity. 
and it can't buy its way out, and it wonders, how am I, I going to get out of all that I've done, all the things I've suffered, all the pain I've inflicted on others? You know what you find? The Son of Man meeting you at that moment. Bringing meaning to what it means, Son of Man. Maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you've tried all kinds of New Age things, crystals, psychics, New Age religions, religions of the world. But you come finally to Jesus Christ and you finally meet Him. You've discarded Him because He's the last person you want to talk to, but now you're kind of going full circle. When you meet Him face to face, He brings meaning to what it means, Son of Man. Maybe you're a believer. He brings meaning. New meaning. He adds meaning. Maybe you've moved to being a follower, a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. He'll add new meaning to Son of Man. And you know, I put this last term, saint, meaning dead person. Somewhere out in eternity, we'll meet the Son of Man and He'll add even more meaning to you personally about what it means. Now, I thought about my own life and I thought about just some of the people I've met even over the last month. And I thought about those Scriptures. And what I want to do is go back through each one of those and tell you some of the meaning of each one of those moments. For instance, for the lost person. What is Jesus for the lost person? Well, the lost person finds if he really meets Jesus face to face, it's not somebody that's going to rub his nose in his sin. Not somebody that's going to condemn him. What he's going to find from the Son of Man is a rescuer. A rescuer who seeks him. Who wants to be with him. Not away from him, with him. That's why in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come to condemn it. He didn't come to kick it. He didn't come to ridicule it or laugh at it. That's you and me. No, He came to seek you. Because He wants to make a difference in your life. You know, I've talked to some people in the last month who, um, you know, have just felt like kind of their life, they're just wandering now. They thought they had the answers. They found out they didn't. And we've had an encounter, and as they tell me about their life, they say, you know, when I really started searching, it was kind of got odd. I'd, I'd meet somebody, and we'd get a dialogue, and they'd mention somewhere in the conversation they were a Christian. And I felt kind of a con funny connection there. And then I'd turn on the TV, and there'd be Billy Graham, and I'd feel a connection. And, you know, I'd, I'd pray, and something would happen, and I'd feel a connection. What are you feeling? You're feeling the Son of Man seeking you. That's what you're feeling. Well, what about the person who's guilty? Well, the person who's guilty, I think, finds in Jesus Christ an authority who forgives. Matthew 9-7, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You know, I meet people, that one this week, who after his divorce and after some of the things he's been through, you know, he just felt so guilty. And he didn't know what to do with all that guilt. But he finally stumbles upon Jesus Christ and just through a simple act of relinquishing his life to Jesus and confessing his sin, knowing that Jesus Christ said he paid for that sin, suddenly he feels immediate relief. How can that be? It's because there's only one person who has the authority to forgive your sins. And that's the Son of Man. What about the seeker, the one who's trying to find some connection with God? He can go to India. He can go to Africa. He can, he, he can go into all kinds of psychic witchcraft and come out frustrated. But you know, when he finally meets the Son of Man, 
He finds somebody who is a mediator between God and man because he knows everything about man because he is a man and everything about God because he is God. And what better person to have at the negotiating table, right? Who understands both parties to the fullest. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there's only one mediator between God and men. That's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He brings the seeker into a connection with the living God. Well, what about the believer? What the believer finds in Jesus Christ is a friend who gives. That's why in Matthew 20, 28, it says, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve you. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He calls Himself our friend. And what He does, He comes alongside the person who's placed their faith. That might be where you are and you're wondering, okay, what does the Son of Man mean to me? It means that you've got somebody at your side. A friend who will encourage you, who will direct you, who will support you who will comfort you, who will convict you, who will direct you. And the more He does that, the more there's those personal encounters, you turn and you look at the Son of Man and you go, He is a friend. He really is a friend. What about the follower? The follower finds that Jesus Christ is a rock that empowers. Remember last week when Bill turned over to Matthew 16 and he asked everybody, who do you say that I am? And, Paul, and Peter said, well, you're, you know, they said, you're this and this. And finally, Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Well, that sounds exciting. But you know how Jesus spoke in that moment? If you can go back in that passage in verse 13, here's how he starts that discourse. Men, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And finally, Peter says, well, you're the Christ. And Jesus doesn't jump on it and say, you're right, I am the Christ. All He says is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because heaven, I mean, earth and flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then He says, and upon this rock, meaning Himself, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven because I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now what did He mean by that? He meant when you're my follower, now listen very closely, when you're my follower, when you're committed to Me, I will introduce you to a whole new experience with the Son of Man. And that's this. I will make you part of My life-changing church that will change the culture. See the imagery there? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll change you in such a way. I'll empower you in such a way upon this rock that you will go out and address the culture. And they will put their gates up trying to keep you out, but they'll not be able to keep you out. You'll change culture. And a church knows when it's really connected with the Son of Man because it begins to have an impact on the culture. Secondly, you'll change lives. Remember, to you, Peter, I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you unloose will be unloosed. What did he mean by that? It just means I give you the authority, my authority to go and bring the gospel and offer it. And when you say to a person who's yielded to Me, your sins are forgiven, they've already been forgiven in heaven. You have that authority. When you introduce them to walk with Me, and they start walking with Me and their life begins to change, you have the authority to do that. To offer that to them because I'm with you, empowering you upon this rock. That's what you'll know about the Son of Man. And then when we die, and we're that saint, what we discover is the Son of Man is still revealing Himself to us. He tells us that He'll become a king who will share with us His kingdom. 
I want you to turn back to Daniel chapter 7 for just a moment. Remember we read that about the kingdom that was going to come, but you know what's interesting to me is what comes right after that. Because you know at the end, here's the end, there's the kingdom that goes into eternity, the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ as the King, and you think, wow, and I'm just glad to be there and we'll be kind of just around. No, you won't be just around. Because the King, who is really the Son of Man, is still sharing. Now three times this is stated in chapter 7, but I'm just going to read one of them. Look at verse 27. And I want you to follow very closely. Listen to what it says. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, verse 27, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Now that's what we just read about that the, the king, the son, one like the Son of Man would receive. All that dominion, that greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Then it will be given to who? to the people of the saints of the highest one. And you say, well, Robert, what does that mean? Well, it's an invitation to imagine. Can you feel the invitation to imagine? Here you are, you're in eternity. Man, you're just glad to be there. But you meet the Son of Man. And what does the Son of Man say? I've got all this. These realms, these kingdoms. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you know what? I want you to have part of it. Remember back with the first man, Adam? He was called to be fruitful and multiply and then to go out and have dominion over the earth. And he failed tragically. But you know, his original call was to be a ruler over the earth. And now I not only have the earth, I have the universe. And you're here. And we're still growing together. And you know what? We're going to complete what the first man failed at. Now you're here, and I want to give you dominion. Because man was created to be a ruler. And with the Son of Man, He has that experience. Son of Man. Biblically, it means a kingdom with an eternal king. Theologically, it means the head of a new humanity. Historically, it means one who comes to our level to take us to His. But you know what personally it means? Personally, it means an ever-expanding encounter with life. Because the Son of Man is life. For the lost, He's a rescuer. For the guilty, He's a forgiver. For the seeker, He's a connector. For the believer, He's a friend. For the follower, He's a rock. And for the saint, He's a ruler who shares it all. That's Son of Man. And you know, I believe somewhere out there when all of us are saints in eternity, when all of us are reviewing all these things that have happened to us between us and Him who loves calling Himself the Son of Man, when we review all that, and then He previews all the thrills that are still yet before of us, and we're drinking it all in, I think probably at that moment will be the time where we will dare to answer the question that was raised in John 12. It'll be at that point that I think we'll look at each other and say, you know, I think I finally figured out who the Son of Man is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these really high and lofty thoughts, but such is the name. 
Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. And Jesus Christ is like us. And oh, Father, how I thank You that forever we can relate to one who understands, who knows us so well, who will have, have had every experience we will have, yet without sin, and who will offer to us in bodily form a relationship forever. How we praise You this day for the title, Son of Man. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.